Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Rupert Murdoch's testimony in the deposition that was unsealed in the Dominion Voting Systems defamation lawsuit seeking $1.6 billion in damages from Fox News and speak with Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a long-time chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics. A winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism, her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, and The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. We'll discuss the explosive revelation that Murdoch gave Jared Kushner a preview of Biden's 2020 campaign ads and debate strategy, which has Congressman Ted Lieu suggesting, quote, these actions by Rupert Murdoch seem illegal. At the very best, it would appear to be a campaign contribution of significant value, well over federal campaign limits. Then we'll look into today's oral arguments before the Supreme Court in Republican efforts to prevent Biden's student loan forgiveness plan from going forward to give debt relief to 40 million Americans. Joining us is Barmak Nasirian the Vice President for Higher Education Policy at Veterans Education Success, where he develops and executes the organization's higher education policy priorities. He worked on the last three congressional reauthorizations of the Higher Education Act, including multiple rounds of negotiated rulemaking with the U.S. Department of Education, and has testified before congressional committees on various higher education topics. Then finally, with renewed tensions with China over intelligence reports raising suspicions that a lab accident caused the coronavirus pandemic, we'll look further into failures to deal with the pandemic due to the decades-long structural decline associated with putting profits ahead of people that gutted U.S. public health. Joining us is Rob Wallace an evolutionary epidemiologist who has consulted with the Food and Agriculture Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Currently a visiting scholar at the Institute for Global Studies at the University of Minnesota and a member of the Pandemic Research for the People, he is the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu, Dispatches on Influenza, Agribusiness and the Nature of Science, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19, And his latest book just out is The Fault in Our SARS, COVID-19 in the Biden Era. And joining us now is Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adele Stan. It's always great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Adele. And we're learning now from a deposition of Rupert Murdoch's testimony that was unsealed in the Dominion Voting Systems defamation suit seeking $1.6 billion from Fox in damages. We're learning from this release by Dominion uh, some pretty alarming stuff about what Murdoch said and what he knew and what he didn't act on, but the most alarming, I guess, in a way, is that he handed Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, confidential information about Joe Biden's 2020 campaign ads before they were aired on Fox News and gave them a heads up on on both the commercials and Biden's strategy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's got, you know, for example, our congressman out here in Los Angeles, 
Ted Lieu was saying, you know, that's an in-kind <laughs> campaign uh, donation and therefore sure. a, a campaign violation. Do you think that uh, there's going to be, well, I'll just quote from what uh, Ted Lieu said, at the very least, it would appear to be a campaign contribution of significant value well over federal campaign limits. So do you think mm-hmm. uh, there's somebody else might slap a suit on uh, Fox? Well, I mean, you know, the FEC and the Federal Elections Commission, you know, they they are not probably the strongest agency in that regard. But nonetheless, if they want to live up to their name, they're going to have to do something right. Um, now, the Biden campaign, um, you know, the people who are on the Biden campaign, could they do that? Um, I don't know. But I got to say, Ian. This Dominion filing, court filing, is just the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, it's just astonishing every day what comes out of that court filing uh, about Fox News and its absolute um, mendacity, you know? Well, it's pretty clear that telling the truth for Fox News is bad for business. Right. Absolutely. I mean... They threw in with this cultist, right, named Donald Trump, who spun crazy yarns and and took in people who spun crazier yarns, and they hitched their wagon to that star. They built a strong, they they strengthened their their viewer base uh, in doing so, and then they got, and this is where this landed them. And it looks like they had, you know, made the bet to keep following that train. So it's really amazing to contemplate the future with so much going on. I mean, you know, between all of the, you know, the the January 6th prosecutions are still going on. Um, We don't have a verdict yet in the Proud Boys case. Um, And then you have this. I mean, this is establishment republicanism at this point, right? I mean, these are the people who own the institutions would be the establishment. And we can't forget that Murdoch has also been in alliance with um, with then the Koch brothers, uh, and I assume continues to be with Charles Koch on policy stuff that they push. And you'll recall that the Kochs had turned up their noses publicly at Trump, but fell right in when they knew that you know it was going to be good for them on the deregulation front. So well, everybody's in it for the for, for the dough, you know. Right. Well, Fox is un, unabashedly supporting Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. Right. So Absolutely. They're probably in in league with the Koch brothers on that. But I thought one of the most extraordinary revelations is that from these court filings is that on the very day before the uh, insurrection, January the fifth. Murdoch wanted to get his three top anchors or entertainers or whatever you want to call them, uh, Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingram, to all go public and say that Joe Biden won the elections fair and square. Now, that was the Mm. day before the insurrection. Had that happened, do you think it might have had an effect? It might have taken the steam out of what happened the next day in terms of Trump's rally and sicking the crowd onto the Capitol? Well, I think it's hard to say because at that point, you have to remember that they had, Fox News had already lost a lot of the hardcore 
um, the minute that on election night they called Arizona for Joe Biden effectively announcing that Biden had won the election, right? And then they had this whole backlash. And by the time you get to the insurrection, um, you have a hard right that no longer believes Fox News and is going over to and is solely getting its stuff from YouTubers, from Newsmax, and from uh, OAN, One News America, I believe, is uh, One American News, I believe, is the name of the network. OAN is how it's referred to. Anyway, um, so I'm not sure that that would have stopped the interaction. I do think it would have perhaps... Um, you know, altered the way um, that, uh, you know, might, maybe there would be fewer people in the crowd or there would certainly be confusion, but there would also be a, a really strong backlash, I think. Um, you know, Fox News is no longer seen as a truth teller by a lot of those folks. But before we, we got these court filings revealed about internal communications, about how these anchors really felt and how... Uh, Murdoch himself really felt about Trump and about Trump's stop the steal lie. We learn right. from the emails to Mark Meadows from the January 6th committee, uh, we mm. learn that all of these anchors, the one, the very three that Murdoch thought maybe could go public and, and try and stop the steal, stop the steal. Right, steal. Stop the stop. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's a mouthful. <laughs> they uh, were totally alarmed by what was happening on that day. This is a terrible look for us. This is going to hurt us. All we've built and all this sort of hand-wringing. So isn't Mm -hmm. it extraordinary to think that from one day to the next, how their hypocrisy is so incredibly exposed about who they are and what they felt and what they should have done? And in fact, Murdoch himself said, well, when he was asked about what he could have done, he said, yeah, I could have done more. You know, right. <laughs> that's thanks. putting it mildly. <laughs> thanks, Ruth. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it really is completely extraordinary. And that the fact that Tucker Carlson wanted to get the fact checker, Jackie Heinrich, who, you know, fact checked a, a Trump tweet and tweeted out her fact check. You want to get her fired for telling the truth. You know, um, it, it, it's just it's just um you know, because she basically came back and said uh, election officials saw absolutely no problems with the Dominion system, you know, um, and with the votes. So it, 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 it is just, you know, you can see them in that series. And, and good for you for remembering the, the, the Meadows text. You know, you can see through through now that we've got kind of this timeline going back to to November of uh, of 2020 all the way through to January 6th, you know, you can really see the kind of undulation and, and pretzel twisting these folks are trying to go through in order to exonerate themselves, right? But nonetheless, keep their fingers in the till. So, um, nice yeah, well, bunch of folks. Well, that's what the lawyer said, right? It's not about the red or the mm-hmm. blue, it's about the green. And, right. uh, and Murdoch exactly agreed right. with that, you know. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, and, of course, Murdoch's properties, as you well know, um, 
you know, have, have a history of, of, of doing dirty. So this should not be surprising. And, and Murdoch's kind of, you know, well, I guess I could have done more. Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Well, the TV show that's sort of loosely based on the Murdoch family, Secession, the, Mm -hmm. the patriarch in that at one point said, we don't do shame. And boy, does that nail the Murdochs, right? And Fox. Oh, yeah, right. They don't That's do shame. Sure. They're, they're incapable of being shamed or feeling shame. And that's what they have in common with the fir- former first family, right? I mean, nor do the Trumps. The Trumps do not do shame either. So, you know, when you have these norm-breaking, shameless folks, um, they can wreak all kinds of havoc because others, their opponents, tend to play by a certain set of rules that they don't, you know. So so it's a lot of asymmetrical warfare, information warfare in that regard as well. Well, but what has been a continuing asymmetry is that's between how the Republicans play rough and ready and dirty and the Democrats go into a knife fight with a butter knife, you know, that's for my entire career, you know. <laughs> I right. mean the last well, forty years I've been watching. So this, let's you know? look at what the Republicans are doing now with all this ridiculous Hunter Biden stuff. Why can't the Democrats seize on on the role of Trump's son in law and his daughter? I mean, apart from the fact that they got two billion dollar payoff from Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah, for for (laughs) leaking American intelligence to to MBS so that he could arrest all of his potential foes. So that's bad enough. But now with this uh, revelation from uh, Rupert Murdoch's deposition in the uh, Dominion voting system case, we're now learning that he was the conduit for a dirty trick on Biden. So Yeah, absolutely. That should get the Democrats riled up. Surely, I mean, it's not. Oh, sure, it's not. You know, it's not simply a matter of them getting riled up. It's the Democrats, in my estimation, have never, and I don't think this is a controversial point. Have never done the communications game well. They just do not. Even when they have the most articulate spokespeople at the helm of the party, you know, they just don't understand the strategy. I think of. They don't understand communication strategy the way the Republicans do, and they are afraid of losing their voters, especially swing voters who are deemed to be, quote unquote, moderate. Right. And, you know, to to Democrats, that seems to to mean, you know, you use a moderating tone. And, you know, that's just not the way, like they say, politics ain't beanball. Right. And it's it's to me malpractice at this point that because the Democrats really have the fate of American democracy in their hands, they really better get this game together. And by game, I don't mean it's frivolous. I just mean that you need some real game strategy to make this thing work and to get the right message out to the right people. So just in the last minute, Adele, the $1.6 billion damages suit brought by Dominion Voting System, probably they probably won't get the full 1.6, but they may get a billion. It looks like they've got a really solid case, even though right. Fox is crying First Amendment 
but there's the issue of absence of malice, and it's clearly complete right. malice on the part right. of them. De- so I think they're on, so hard to prove. Yeah, right. Here, here. So I I think they're in bad shape. But if they uh, get nailed and have to pay out, or they won't because they'll go they'll settle before that. But there's also right. a possibility that in the settlement they may have to make an apology. So can you imagine Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and Sean Hannity telling their listeners? We lied that, to you. That would be that would be so delicious. I've got to say, that's, that's, you gave me you know gave me some hope to hang my hat on, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you know these the, Dominion is I think well within their rights because because what what red state election uh, official is going to use Dominion machines right until this thing gets straightened out. Mm. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Adele. Always good to be with you, Ian. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into today's oral arguments before the Supreme Court in Republican efforts to prevent Biden's student loan forgiveness plan from going forward to give debt relief to 40 million Americans. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Barmak Nasirian, who is the Vice President for Higher Education Policy at Veterans Education Success, where he develops and executes the organization's higher education policy priorities. He has worked on the last three congressional reauthorizations of the Higher Education Act, including multiple rounds of negotiated rulemaking with the United States Department of Education, and he's testified before congressional committees on various higher education topics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Barmak Nasirian. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us, Barmak. And what did you make of the oral arguments today before the Supreme Court on Biden's student loan relief plans, which there are two cases, one brought by Republican governors who may not have standing, and then the other is brought by a couple of of, uh, students who, I guess, are against Biden's initiative. So what was your takeaway? It was, I guess, sadly predictable in some ways. Uh, What we saw was Um, echoes of the same kind of um, uh, ideological positioning that we have seen uh, elsewhere, particularly in Congress, where conservative-leaning 
uh, commentators have objected and, uh, you know, democratic-leaning commentators have applauded the administration's actions. So the Supreme Court is is very much reflecting today's conversation, today's briefing before the court very much reflected that same division, it seems to me. And it shouldn't have, because there are some sort of principled issues here that you would think the conservatives would be sympathetic to. And explain what you mean by that. Well, primarily the issue of standing on which conservative jurisprudence has been fairly strict, uh, typically demanding uh, very clear harm to be demonstrated before plaintiffs can bring a case. But, But here you have some fairly tenuous links uh, b- both with regard to attorneys generals as well as the two individual plaintiffs claiming fairly attenuated harm and yet being, you know, given this level of hearing. So I, I would have thought that at least on that front, the conservatives would be a lot more strict uh, than they seem to be. Well, the liberal members of the court, the only three remaining, did question these states' attorney generals on their standing and did ask them, you know, where is the harm? So were they able to answer those questions? Again, I don't purport to be neutral on the question. I, I, My own opinion as a non-attorney is that it's very difficult to detect what their standing actually is. You know, it's not very clear what the harm is, particularly in the case of Missouri, where Mohila, which is a servicer on whose behalf the state purports to be acting, is itself delinquent in its payments to the state. So to, it certainly did not strike me personally as a particularly convincing argument um, or defense of, of, the, of the AG's standing. Well, it didn't seem to convince the conservative justice, Amy Coney Barrett, either, did it? That's right. That's right. I mean, she pointedly asked, well, you know, why didn't Mohila show up as a plaintiff? Right. And what about the two students? What's their well, case and do they have standing? That they, Their standing is even more dubious, quite candidly, because neither of them would be better off if the if the ruling went their way, which is sort of the ultimate test of standing is that you suffered harm as a result of the disputed action and reversing said action or preventing said action will somehow benefit you. Neither of them would be any better, any better off either way. So I'm not sure in what universe they can claim standing, but again, they, they, they were there. So, you know, we'll see what the, what the court rules. So, and by the way, this is all peripheral, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the substantive question uh, on the merits uh, still favors the administration's action, regardless of what one thinks about the policy itself. It's really difficult to see how uh, the the administration's actions uh, can be unlawful, given the clear statutory authorization that they're citing. Well, that didn't stop Justice Roberts, who said he was skeptical. But Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, he felt that uh, this was an overreach by the executive branch and that Congress should make these determinations. Well, but that, but the, I think the response to that is that Congress did, in fact, authorize the executive branch to modify terms and conditions of loans 
under certain circumstances, under national emergencies. We had a national emergency while President Trump was in office, and he certainly modified terms and conditions and, in effect, forgave uh, principles, right? Because remember, people who borrow unsubsidized loans uh, and do not pay the interest are supposed to have that interest, were supposed to have that interest added to the principal and compounded. Well, he he put a pause on repayment for everybody at the federal expense. So that is, in fact, a form of loan forgiveness. Uh, and I didn't see anybody contesting that action. If he could do it for that component of the of the loans, it's really hard to see if that action was lawful. It's hard to see why um, forgiveness in a different amount or based on the same statutory authorization is somehow uh, an overreach. But again, you know, I'm not a Supreme Court justice, obviously, and they're going to rule. And um, at the end of the day, regardless of how they rule, I think we as a nation need to wrap our heads around the mistake we made 50 years ago to debt finance higher ed to this extent. So this overhang of massive amounts of debt will have to be dealt with somehow. We'll see We'll see how, how they rule and what the reaction to that ruling might be. But Barmak, it seems to be just a question of ideology. The cases are brought for ideological reasons, obviously. Sure. Anything that Biden does, the Republicans <laughs> have to undo. It's the same with, with Trump, with anything that Obama did, he had to undo. And in this case, you have ideological judges who have been chosen for ideological reasons. So, I mean, I wouldn't hold my breath that justice will be done here. But we're talking about half a trillion dollars, right? 40 million American uh, are affected by this. And Biden's initiative would eliminate up to $10,000 of student debt for borrowers earning up to 125000 annually or up to $250,000 for married couples. So this is a, a lot of Americans that have been affected, $40 million. Indeed, indeed. This is a very serious uh, policy issue. It's a very serious national economic issue. And as I said, regardless, yes, I appreciate the point you made about the the unfortunate sort of ideological polarization we see around every issue where positions are adopted not on the merit, but on the basis of what the other side happens to favor. But we need to grapple with this problem. College financing has become a significant drag on everyday people, people whose only mistake is that they weren't wealthy enough to pay out of pocket. And some form of remedy has to be has to be available to them. Congress has been unable to act. Congress has failed to reauthorize the basic law in question here since 2008. It's supposed to be reauthorized every five years. So Congress is not stepping up. It seems to me the administration found a way, in my opinion, legal in other People's views, maybe not, I don't know. But but the administration has to be credited for stepping up and making a difficult policy decision that is probably the right one when it comes to lessening this burden on, on ordinary working people. So what happened to bring about this system of student debt and having the government in many ways finance and profit from the indentured nature of 
student debt because essentially what you're doing is you're indenturing generations of yeah. young Americans before they even get a job. They're in yes. debt. And, yes. And, yes. and the economic fallout from that is pretty obvious. And economists have pointed out, you know, young people can't buy homes and refrigerators and cars, et cetera. They, you know, they, the American dream is, is not available to them as it was to their parents and grandparents. So what happened? When was this decision made to essentially financialize education and, and turn students into away from being centers of learning but to become centers of profit? You know, it, it, different people will periodize it differently. But I, first of all, the decision was made in the early 70s um, in terms of timing. This is also very much the point at which the American political economy took a neoliberal turn. It, it, it basically sort of began the process of ending New Deal, the New Deal policies that had saved capitalism and got the country through World War II and the prosperity of the post-war period. And yes, financialization became the name of the game. And if you look at the founding documents around student aid, one of the points that I always make to people is, would you like to have this system we have for colleges uh, exported to K-12 education? Would you tolerate having public institutions charge tuition and then give yourself a consolation prize of saying, well, you know, don't worry about it. Those who can't afford it, we will give vouchers and loans to. I don't think we would as a nation tolerate that for a minute because we recognize the import, the foundational importance of K-12 education. I think in, in this economy, in this information age where more skills are needed than ever before, higher ed can very much be seen in that same way. And it's critical that uh, the financing approach really kind of replicate the K-12 approach, which is to say it is primarily a public responsibility. But the decision was made and it was made on the basis of a series of entirely predictably false assumptions, one of which was, oh, you know, if the feds begin to do this, the states will still keep up their support. Well, they didn't. They began to disinvest and privatize. The other assumption they made was that wages will continue to increase. And in fact, if you look back, 1973 was the was the high point of average earnings in this country. They have stagnated since then. And the burden and, and the other assumption also they made was that somehow institutions won't increase tuition, which of course they have at, at alarmingly rapid rates. So those forces together have created a nation that, as you point out, is increasingly indentured before it even steps into the labor market. Well, it's really tragic for a lot of people. And I'm wondering whether there's a connection here between the growth of student debt, which is now, what, at $1.6 trillion? Is that right? I think it's it's better than $1.78 trillion. Okay. Well, it's yeah. going up all the time, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Yes. So is there a link between student debt and the increasing cost of higher education? Because, for example, out here in California, the UC system, the University of California system, was basically free when it started, and that Indeed. was only a few decades ago. And now it's just outrageously expensive, and UCLA is just a big money machine. Well, you know, there is no no question that the availability of easy credit 
has created a path of least resistance for disinvestment and privatization. And policymakers, and you know, and you, in a way, you can't blame them because obviously, particularly when it comes to state funding, there are so many competing and compelling needs that it's very easy for even an enlightened uh, uh, policymaker at the state level to give themselves the consolation prize that is, well, you know, we'll increase the money, the tuition significantly, but we don't need to lose sleep at night because there's federal aid available. And of course, you know, it doesn't enter anybody's mind that that federal aid is increasingly and disproportionately composed of debt. And that, you know, there really comes a point at which you need to begin to ponder, are we leaving the majority of the people touched by the system any better off? Or are, would they have, which is a horrible thing to say, because of course, you know, I do believe in higher education. I think it is important, but are we leaving people worse off because they are, you know, they may be getting an education, maybe not, by the way, there's plenty of really, not, not the UC system, but plenty of lousy providers who participate in this system and leave people definitely worse off. But even in case of quality institutions, we are increasingly looking at an educated underclass that has to struggle just to maintain, you know, basic needs in the face of loan repayment obligations. Well, you referred uh, to what I consider to be a racket, which are these for-profit colleges that I think it's something like 40 is it forty billion a yes. year in taxpayer money that goes to these rip-off companies Indeed. that saddle kids with a massive student debt and a worthless diploma, and they target veterans, which is what you work on, right? Indeed, there is on sadly uh, for-profit uh, businesses slash schools uh, enroll uh, the, the, uh, veterans in disproportionate numbers. They also target uh, very systematically and intentionally, they, they target uh, low-income communities, underserved populations, um, students who would absolutely be vastly better served uh, in a properly funded community college system, in a properly funded state university system, uh, mm. who end up paying out of pocket oftentimes for subpar and, you know, worthless education and who are left with massive amounts of debt that will that they will never be able to repay. Right. And that, by the way, if I may, this is another point to understand for, for the public. You know, we, we you mentioned the Congressional Budget Office estimate on the cost of the Biden proposal. I have good and bad news for people. Folks, this is not real money. Most of this money is unrepayable. It is not like anybody is actually giving away $100 bills. This is These are receivables on the federal government's books, which based on the bitter history of, of, of repayment and, and, and delinquency when it comes to student uh, loan repayments, we know a good chunk of this portfolio will never be retired. So you're sort of acknowledging the inevitable if you write off. And, and in fact, any business would have written a lot of this debt off already. Well, I'm glad you joined us. You filled us in on some important uh, points here, Barmak, and I'm grateful. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. Pleasure. And, 
And again, I've been speaking with Barmak Nasirian, who is the Vice President for Higher Education Policy at Veterans Education Success, where he develops and executes the organization's higher education policy priorities. He's worked on the last three congressional reauthorizations of the Higher Education Act, including multiple rounds of negotiated rulemaking with the United States Department of Education, and he's testified before congressional committees on various higher education topics. We can take a brief station break and back looking further into failures to deal with the coronavirus pandemic due to the decades-long structural decline associated with putting profits ahead of people that gutted U.S. public health. Teach your parents well Their children's hell Will slowly go by And feed them on your dreams the one they fix, the one you know by. Don't you ever ask them why. I worked in your orchards of peaches and prunes. Slept on the ground in the light of your moon. On the edge of your city you'll see us and then we come with the dust and we go with the wind. Green pastures of plenty from dry desert ground from that grass. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rob Wallace, an evolutionary epidemiologist who has consulted with the Food and Agriculture Organization and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, currently a visiting professor at the Institute for Global Studies at the University of Minnesota and a member of Pandemic Research for the People. He's the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu, Dispatches on Influenza, Agribusiness and the Nature of Science, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19, and his latest book just out is The Fault in Our SARS, COVID-19 in the Biden Era. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rob Wallace. Uh, Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Rob. And of course, there's a lot of attention now on the apparently new intelligence has moved the Department of Energy to suggest that there's a possibility that COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic, could have been as a result of a lab accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They rate that amongst the other intelligence agencies as with low confidence. The FBI has joined with the DOE a moderate confidence agreeing with that assessment. It's not happening at the best time in U.S.-China relations. What do you make of this uh, shift? Well, I think it's exactly why this investigation was pursued and because of the uh, terrible relations we presently have with China. I mean, uh, I think uh, we're at the start of a, uh, a new Cold War, and uh, unfortunately, all sorts of different domains and issues are being used to, in essence, divide the world from, e- from itself. You know, it's been since 2000, the, the U.S. and China have had uh, a warming up relationship that, uh, upon the pandemic, really shifted geared in the other direction. And uh, my interpretation of it, as far as uh, as I write it in the new book, is that nobody wants to be held holding the bag on this, right? Everything from uh, the very origins of the virus, whether it's a lab leak, whether it's from the out in the field in China, the U.S. is involved in both those parts of it, and um, nobody wants to be blamed for the origins of the virus, but also 
Presently, the pandemic, although the economy was uh, in a downturn even before the pandemic arrived, uh, it certainly didn't help. Uh, and you have basically an inter-imperial rivalry going on in which uh, two or even three, if you include Russia, two or three uh, large countries are trying to uh, maneuver to uh, offload the kind of devaluation that's coming on as capitalism enters a particular era of crisis. So everything's uh, unfortunately being used as a, a means to uh, push back against uh, the other countries, uh, whether it's the war in Ukraine, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's the pandemic. And uh, it's unfortunate that what should be a time of, of growing solidarity, where uh, countries around the world gather together, work together to fight off dangers that are threatening uh, all countries, uh, not only pandemic, but say climate change as well, uh, is instead being used as a tool for dividing and conquering. Well, I don't see much conquering going on, but I see a lot of division. So, and of course, China's response has been quite draconian, and nothing was more disastrous than Donald Trump. We all remember him talking about drinking bleach and shining ultraviolet light up, you know, what? God knows right. where. I mean... But your book indicates that even though Trump is largely responsible, maybe for half a million deaths, Biden hasn't fared much better, has he? And what, well, the death count's pretty even, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. You know, at this point, uh, you know, Biden's been in office for a little bit longer. But uh, I mean, the uh, although the rate of deaths have somewhat declined, uh, he's certainly responsible for uh, approaching uh, seven to seven to fifty thousand deaths. Uh, and I say responsible because. Uh, Governance involves making choices about what to do about existential crises. I mean, uh, and, you know, when it comes to what a nation must uh, respond to, pestilence and war. I mean, those are uh, critical issues to respond to. And um, it was very clear, uh, though Biden, with due cause, ran against Trump on COVID. Trump basically washed his hands of this, wouldn't do anything about it. It was, uh, you know, the incompetence that he had displayed through his entire presidency finally really caught up to us as a, as a nation. Biden basically ran on a, a kind of um, Rooseveltian platform of actually promising a big government uh, to indeed face what is a big problem. That's what the pandemic outbreak is. But upon uh, six months in, uh, you could see the administration wanting to, to bail out much in the, in the vein of the Trump administration. So if you recall, Biden called for an Independence Day uh, from COVID at July 4th, uh, 2021. Uh, we had vaccines, therefore we were in the clear. And this had led to CDC making the undue recommendation that um, that those who were vaccinated didn't have to wear a mask anymore. And so that, in essence, was the beginning of the end. Uh, July 4th didn't go very well. Uh, you had the uh, arrival of the Delta uh, variant from China, followed by the Omicron variants that led to uh, millions of people being infected, hundreds of thousands killed. But by January 2022, the administration really had had it. They, they didn't want to do pandemic anymore. They had, in essence, uh, wanted to wave the white flag on that and, and move the country out declare victory, whatever the, the, the consequence. And so from early 2022, 
Biden's advisors basically declared that he needed to start to move the country in a direction of, of, of normalcy, uh, whatever the state of the of the actual virus and pandemic itself. And so that was a a, a year of basically dismantling what little public health and economic support were being given to the American people. And so uh, which one program after another being dismantled. And so we find ourselves uh, here in the State of the Union, January 2023, uh, in essence, a declaration that the pandemic is over, uh, even though at, at this time we have more than 20,000 Americans killed. We have, uh, by the Health and Human Services uh, estimates, uh, as many as 36 million Americans have suffered uh, long COVID. Uh, we have a virus that continues to evolve out from underneath not only our, our vaccines, but also our uh, antivirals. So uh, it's not a good moment um, for public health. I would offer that it's not a good moment for the country. I understand people's exhaustion with the pandemic, but this is why one needs to engage in uh, true blue public health, take care of business, and drive the pandemic underneath its rate of replacement in, in a matter of months, rather than kind of doing these half measures and dithering around that uh, gives us the, uh, the worst of both worlds. We get exhausted from all the pandemic and the virus continues to evolve and spread. But it's been the right wing in this country that's fought against public health mm-hmm. on the basis that somehow their freedom was being impinged. It's the same kind of freedom that they talk about, the freedom to have a military-grade assault rifle, that mm-hmm. kind of freedom, which is really a disaster in this country and unique to this country. And you've got the Supreme Court, which is highly controlled by far-right ideologues. They've gone after the legal basis of public health. Mm -hmm. So the assault on public health is coming from the right. Biden may have failed, but wasn't he up against these people? Well, you're absolutely right. The right wing has been terrible on this right from the start. I do not celebrate anybody's death from COVID. I do make one exception. That is for right wing uh, radio talk show hosts who pretended this was not uh, nothing dangerous. Uh, many of them did, several of them did die of COVID. And, but the problem, of course, is that they encouraged millions of their listeners not to care about this, uh, leading to hundreds of thousands of their deaths. So most definitely uh, the right wing is, is most definitely to blame. But we've arrived at a moment here uh, in which the failure of public health is a bipartisan it's a bipartisan uh, activity. And some things uh, are thought as more important than the the health and well-being of the American people. And that has to do with getting everybody back to work. So it's very much a society organized around employer needs. And uh, upon taking office, I think that the message was delivered to to Biden quite clearly. And, uh, you know, and we see time and again across uh, various topics and issues that it does come up. I mean, the uh, derailment, uh, toxic derailment in Ohio is another example of this. Uh, in which, in essence, there's an aspect of class war being uh, taken on, largely the American people, done in a bipartisan uh, way. And uh, it's not a good moment for uh, the country because, uh, in essence, not only has public health been abandoned as in practice, but it has been abandoned as a concept. Biden was very much uh, charging ahead on the notion that uh, you do you. you uh, it's your responsibility at the individual level to uh, get vaccines that don't necessarily uh, keep people from being infected. 
they certainly help in terms of keeping you from dying. Uh, but that's, uh, we've ar arrived at a moment where the very girders of our society, the notion that our well-being is connected into the well-being of others has been uh, undercut because there are other, what was thought and treated as more important things. And in, in my view, and as I describe in the book, uh, that has to do with uh, making sure that profits are continued to accumulate, even at the expense of the well-being of the American people. So, Rob, just in the last couple of minutes, so let's talk about what your book talks about in the broader sense, is that it's our intrusion into nature that is causing these zoonotic leaps, and our intrusion into nature is is basically the plundering of basic resources in rainforests, timber and mining, etc. And, of course, the other aspect is uh, these industrial farms as well. So is there any global awakening on that because countries like Papua New Guinea are being plundered and Indonesia and also of course Brazil there's not going to be any rainforest left unless we stop these people right I, it's a great question and my reply is no and yes the no part is that uh, this is in part the push toward ending pandemic by declaration alone rather than the virus itself because we need to go uh, as a society, we've decided we need to go back to uh, 2019 and in, in the business of, of turning land and labor into profit. And uh, many a government is, in essence, a, a kind of adjunct of uh, the profiteering class in a way that uh, they are willing to sacrifice uh, millions of lives, uh, whether through a pandemic and as we are starting to see whether it's uh, a climate change, in order to keep a particular economic uh, expropriation to continue. Now, the yes part is that, uh, fortunately, there are millions of people around the world who, who don't want to go through another pandemic such as this, who are very much uh, feeling the impacts of climate change. Uh, there are, are farmers around the world who are, are uh, engaged in what's called agroecology. So instead of a kind of industrial production of just uh, ripping down forests and turning them into uh, commodity feedlot operations or, or uh, monocrops, are more interested in, in uh, growing food in the context of the ecology upon which we depend. And so those ideas have very much, at one and the same time, have always been around us, perhaps not so much in the global north, more so in the global south. But in addition, here in the global north, the notions of regenerative agriculture are starting to come to the fore, the necessity to have soil that can sop up uh, the floods and retain uh, moisture during the droughts of a of a climate that is becoming uh, much more, uh, much more unpredictable. So I do think that there, there is a, a growing sense that uh, we must do things differently. We must farm our food differently in a way that doesn't uh, allow what were previously marginal pathogens to suddenly be able to burst uh, through a, a more simplified forest and make their way to a local town or, or a local provincial capital. Uh, get on a plane and be on the other side of the world in, in a matter of days. So uh, I do have both uh, worry about the fact that we want that, that certain uh, ruling sections of our society want to continue on the on the path that allow them to accumulate the capital that allows them to to uh, run and rule the world. At the same time, I do believe I draw great hope that there are millions of people around the world who understand and in real tactile, way that 
the damage is accumulating in such a way as to threaten uh, the entirety of humanity. And we must do something differently. But hasn't agribusiness basically destroyed the very seed corn of American agriculture? I mean, my understanding is that agribusiness and the use of fertilizers and pesticides, mm -hmm. etc., have reached a point now where we're going to have to colonize Canada <laughs> because that, the soil in the U.S. is, not, is depleted. Is that your understanding? Uh, you, you are... Uh dead on correct on a number of grounds. So we have a situation where we're using so much fertilizer and pesticide that half of Iowa's rivers are polluted. So the dead zone isn't just in the Gulf of Mexico, it's up in the, in the agricultural states themselves. Uh, people can't live in their hometowns anymore, they can't swim in their local water holes, and large tracts of land are being turned over into, and consolidated in a way that uh, even the very notion of rural life has been uh, largely destroyed. And, and those, uh, that destruction is spreading out. So you, you do have examples of Iowa agribusiness uh, trying to move into um, you know, nearby states like Wisconsin and Minnesota to uh, set up uh, hog confined animal feedlock operations, uh, hog fa factory farms, and local communities pushing back saying, no, we don't want you to do that. So there's a, presently a grand struggle in the Midwest and elsewhere over the nature of agriculture and the nature of rural life. And uh, it's not a done deal. There are a lot of uh, conventional farmers who are coming uh, to their senses and understanding that uh, not only is the kind of factory farming that they've been doing, whether livestock or, or crops, uh, not only is that damaging to their, their way of life and the people around them, but uh, it's not economically paying off them well anymore. So uh, there is a push. And there's two uh, versions of the pushback. One, there is a kind of agribusiness-led uh, attempt at greenwashing to try to uh, uh, take the notion of regenerative agriculture and, in essence, maintain what are uh, the modes of production, or excuse me, change the modes of production, uh, maybe do uh, less tilling, uh, allow the soil to recover better, uh, do more rotational grazing, uh, but at the same time maintain the relations of production, meaning agribusiness will still serve as the source of a many of the inputs and also uh, continue to act as the farmers and buyers. The second version of regenerative ag, and this is where the grand uh, contest is happening, is uh, regenerative agriculture that takes a more of a mac maximalist approach that isn't just about healthy soils, but about farmer autonomy and locus of control, who controls the supply lines. And so presently right now, and it's been amazing, I just went to a farmers conference this week and you hear all sorts of uh, plans to, in essence, move away from the large processing plants, the slaughterhouses, and move toward more smaller uh, regional processing plants that farmers and farmer collectives own from the start. You have uh, all sorts of efforts to try to um, collectivize the grain supplies. So there are um, movements in all sorts of directions, uh, one that unfortunately might continue the damage by virtual letting agribusiness control uh, both the inputs and, and gate prices. But on the other hand, uh, you do have amazing things going on. Um, involved in a study that uh, interviewed farmers here in the Midwest, who these are farmers, ostensibly conventional farmers, working in dairies in Wisconsin, who before our study ever arrived, were working uh, with uh, river health organizations. So it is a difficult historical moment, 
you know, might be that we continue on to destroy the very basis of our ecological existence. And at the same time, people who we never imagined in terms of their politics, uh, they're not necessarily leftists, they could be very conservative, uh, are, are making uh, their own decisions about how to organize themselves, reorganize land use uh, in their, across their uh, counties, and perhaps offering a sliver of hope in a time in which a country seems to be moving to some kind of civil war. Uh, there is the basis for people in the rural areas and the cities to look to each other as sources of help, assistance, and uh, inspiration in terms of uh, reorganizing ourselves in the way that we engage in the kind of the, uh, the metabolic uh, uh, use of our, our land and our food, and to do so in a way that allows cities to continue and also brings rural areas back away from being treated as sacrifice zones and being uh, uh, once again uh, treated with the kind of uh, respect, both uh, economic and ecological, that would do uh, the entirety of the country well. Well, Rob Wallace, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I'm E. Speaker with Rob Wallace, who's an evolutionary epidemiologist who has consulted with the Food and Agricultural Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's currently a visiting scholar at the Institute for Global Studies at the University of Minnesota and a member of the Pandemic Research for the People. He's the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu, Dispatches on Influenza, Agribusiness, and the Nature of Science, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19, and his latest book just out is The Fault is in Our SARS, COVID-19 in the Biden Era. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Sing